Our mission, we're about helping people find and follow Jesus. We're going to continue in this series. We started this series three weeks uh, earlier. We've been calling this series Because of Bethlehem. I guess technically it's two weeks because this is week number three. Yeah, so two weeks ago we started this uh, series be called Because of Bethlehem. So if you brought your Bibles, open to the Gospel of Luke chapter 2. Uh, this is the same text that Pastor Jess read last night, uh, verses 25 through 38, a sermon I'm calling Hope Has Arrived. So so the last two, the first two weeks, week one, we unpacked this amazing truth, how God has come to us. And that was the title, God has, has come uh, to earth. That was, uh, we looked at the Old Testament, what the prophet Isaiah said about uh, how God would, would come in the flesh. And then last week, we discussed how grace has appeared. And we looked at Titus chapter 2. And so today, we're going to be talking about how hope has arrived. And with that, let's don my eyeglasses so I can see the text a little better. And let's see, in Luke chapter 2, read it. It says in verse 20, 25, the word of God says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him what's according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen the salvation that you have prepared in, in the presence of all people. A light for a revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to, for, to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what, what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel. And for a sign that, that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your soul, your own soul also, so that, so that thoughts for many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phineal, the tribe of Asher. And she was advanced in years, living in, with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting and prayer day and night. And the coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speaking of him and all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. When it comes to the birth, the narrative of Jesus Christ, there's not a lot of characters, the Bible tells us. There's a few, but not many. Um, but the ones that we do have, there's really very little information about the, these individuals. But Dr. Luke, right here, is recording two individuals that saw Christ as a baby. There's an elderly lady, her, her name is, is Anna, and there's also a man named Simeon. Both elderly Anna, she's 84 years old, and she is a hardcore worshiper of God. She says she's never departing the temple, and she's praying and fasting every day. And I would encourage any of us to just see if we can worship God the way Anna did. And there's also this old man, Simeon. He's an old man. He lives in Jerusalem. And Dr. Luke tells us that he is righteous and devout. He's attending the temple as well, and the Holy Spirit's upon him. And this is wild when you think about it, but God told Simeon that he's not going to see death before he sees the Messiah, Jesus Christ, with his own eyes. 
Wouldn't you just love to have a little insight from God about, about something like that, about Christ? I mean, we don't, but it's, it's fun to think about how, how would it be like to be in Simeon's sandals. But while Simeon and Anna are joyfully anticipating the birth of the long-awaited Messiah, Verse 25 says that Simeon is waiting for the consolation of Israel. Verse 38 says that Anna came to the temple speaking of him, that's Jesus, to everyone that was waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And think about it. Both Simeon and Anna, they're both fervently praying. They're, they're, they're patiently waiting. They're cherishing the hope of the, what all the Old Testament prophets said that pointed to the one that would come and save them. And very little is known about these two people. Okay? We know very little about them, but they tell us a lot about the most significant one, who is Jesus. I heard us say this before, and I'm about to say it again, but God uses nobodies. That's Simeon, that's Anna, that's me, that's you, to tell everyone about the somebody, that's Jesus. Because we're nobodies, at least I see myself as a nobody. We're just ordinary, average people. You know, there's some famous people that are famous for different reasons. But I don't, I don't know about you, but I know I don't fall into this category. I'm just an average, everyday, ordinary Joe. And John in this case. But anyways. But if you really survey the Bible, that's exactly the people that God uses to do, do something huge. You're just every average, ordinary people. Now, there's a few somebodies in the Bible. I think of King Saul. He was tall, dark, and handsome, but things went horribly wrong for Saul. Now, maybe Samson would be another one, but is again, not, not a good ending to the story. I don't know if this is the case, but I believe it's the case. If there's people who are naturally gifted and they get used by God, it tends to go to their head and, and things go horribly wrong for them. But when God uses a nobody, it's very clear that God's the one that did it, and so he gets all the credit. So if you've ever considered yourself a nobody, well, then you're in good company with the who's who in the Bible. And we're reading about two nobodies here in Luke chapter 2. There there are two people that want absolutely nothing to do but to glorify God with the life that God has given them. They're looking for and waiting for the consolation of Israel. Israel's a nation. They were conquered. They were subjected to other nations time and time again. Sometimes it's because of their own disobedience. And sometimes it wasn't. But nevertheless, at this time, when when Dr. Luke pins these words, Israel is under the foot of of Rome. And for centuries, the Jewish people have been waiting. They've been waiting and looking for the consolation of Israel. And so there's these faithful Jews. They're waiting. They're watching for the one that would would free them. But the the very faithful Jews, they knew it would be so much more than just merely political. So at this time, there's this remnant of of believers that are desiring the very first coming of the Christ, the Messiah. Today, we aren't waiting for the first coming. That's already happened. Today, faithful believers are waiting, we're watching, we're looking for Christ's second coming. I don't know about you, but I feel like a little bit like Simeon in that aspect. Now, God hasn't told me that it's going to happen in my lifetime, but I very believe it very likely could happen. But Anna and Simeon, they're faithful believers. They're waiting. They're looking for Christ's first coming. Hopefully, you're ready for his second coming. But Luke chapter 2 that we're reading here, it happens when Jesus is roughly six weeks old. Forty days to be exact is the custom that that the parents would bring their, their child to be dedicated in the temple. 
And that's what Mary and Joseph are doing. And just picture this young teenage couple. They're possibly illiterate peasants from the small rural town of Nazareth. They're just wildly in love with God. And they're very devoted to God. And they, they arrive in Jerusalem. They make their way into the temple. I've been there. You start at the, the steps, most likely in the southern portion. Make their way up the steps. And they're, they're coming. And they're, they're coming with an offering. But this, this couple, they bring an offering of a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons, is what Luke records for us. But this isn't the offering that most people gave. This is the offering that is prescribed in the Old Testament for people that couldn't afford to give the, the regular offering. So this tells us very clearly that Jesus' parents were poor. So Jesus would have grown up in poverty. Jesus wasn't, a, didn't, wasn't raised with a silver spoon in his mouth. But picture, if you will, Mary holding baby Jesus and she's ascending, walking up the steps. And it was, it was typical as they walked up the steps, they would take a step and pray and, and take another step and, and pray and make their way into the temple. And she's very likely exhausted. After all, she just walked all the way to Jerusalem. And they come into Herod's temple. And thus they're fulfilling a prophecy from the book of Malachi uh, that was written 400 years earlier. Read in Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. It says, Behold, I'm sending my messenger. And he will prepare the way before me. We now know that's John the Baptist. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom, I, whom you delight. Behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. So 400 years before Jesus was born, Malachi, who is inspired by the Spirit of God, says the Messiah would come to the temple. And how would the people know who the Messiah is? Well, the, the messenger prepared the way. And then he, at this moment, as we read in Luke chapter 2, he's arrived in the, in the temple. And Mary and Joseph, they, they bring their firstborn son. They're fulfilling this 400-year prophecy. And, and there's some, and they're coming to dedicate their, their baby. And as the Old Testament prescribes, there's some churches that will baptize babies. We don't do that here because I am, my feeling, if it's good enough for Jesus, well, it should be good enough for us. So this, this couple, they come to dedicate their child, this, their baby. They, they know the Savior. But can you imagine what this baby dedication might have been like? Because I get emotional every single time I, I do a baby dedication because I know what a baby dedication represents. A baby dedication represents how, how the, the church will, will pray for that baby that someday in the future that he or she will make a profession of Christ. It's also a time when the, all the church were gathered praying for a child that, that, and making it a promise to God that the church will do anything and everything to help point that, that child to Christ. It's where we're collectively asking God to bless a baby, that a baby will come to faith in, in him. And we're asking God to allow us as, as the church family to be part of that. But this baby dedication was even more so than all I just said there. A picture it. Simeon comes to the temple. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has told him that he would not see death before he sees the Messiah. I mean, again, what a blessing. I can't even wrap my mind around what that might have been like. But anyways, there's Mary and Joseph. And they make their way to the temple. And Simeon sees with his own eyes the constellation of Israel for the very first time. Simeon locks his eyes on the Messiah, the Redeemer, the Savior of the world. He, he fixates on infant Jesus and he goes and he takes Jesus. 
holds him in his hands. And then Simeon's not just holding any old baby. No, he is holding the incarnate God. The second person of the Trinity, the agent of creation, the long-awaited Messiah. I want you to know the message of Christianity is simple. The message of Christianity is that God became a man. And he came for us. I mean, how simple is that? People think that Christianity is complicated. It's not. It's all about when God became a man and he came. You see, all a religion teaches you that you must go to God. That somehow, some way, you have to climb, you have to scratch, you have to fight, you have to work your way to God. It's all about works-based salvation. It's about keeping a list of rules. It's about following traditions. It's about avoiding different taboos. But God, the real God, he bridges the gap that religion can never feel. He did this by sending his son. And he came into the world to save us from our sins. I want you to know that Jesus is our source of peace with God. This works-based salvation will never bring peace with God. Read in in Luke chapter 2, verse 29 again. Simeon says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. So God made this promise to Simeon that he would see the Messiah before he would die. And think about this. How long did he wait? Did God tell him when he was a little boy, a, maybe when he was a grown man? We don't know. Did he wait 75 years or 80 years, maybe more? We have no idea. But all we do know for absolutely certain <coughs> is that God keeps his promises. He made a promise to Simeon that you're going to see the Messiah, and now God's fulfilling his promise like he always does. And Simeon is now can die in peace because he's seen the Prince of Peace. Theologian by the name of J.C. Riley says about Simeon, he says, quote, He speaks like one for whom the grave has lost its terror and the world its charm. Simeon's not a man that's in love with the world. He's not a man that even fears death. You see, we need to know that everyone's going to die someday. All of us. The the statistics are are very stark. One out of one. We, We all die. Okay, the difference is some are going to die with peace and some die without peace. And Luke is telling us that our confidence in facing death, that our origin of peace is with Jesus. This helps us to know what we're talking about here, but you need to know that you can't have peace until you first recognize that we're at war. All unbelievers are at war with God. And this war started all the way back in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. You see, Eve was deceived, and then Adam did what he did knowingly. And we were all plunged into sin because Adam sinned. And they did what they did. What they did is they declared war by declaring their independence. When they disobeyed God, they ate from the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Bible says that sin came into the world through one man, and then death through all, because all has sinned. And that's the bad news, that we're all sinners. But here's the good news. You can have peace with God through Jesus Christ. So all of humanity is at war with God, but peace is freely available through Jesus Christ. So can you say, like Simeon says, can you say, I can depart in peace because I, I can face death because I've seen Jesus? Simeon longed for the coming Messiah, and I mean, think about it. God satisfied his longings. 
Simeon saw the Messiah. He even held the Messiah in his arms. And there's some would say, well, I've never seen Jesus. I've never held Jesus in my arms. How can I believe in somebody I haven't seen? How can I believe like Simeon if I haven't held Jesus? But the truth is, we have more than Simeon. We do. We have the, the, the complete revelation of God. We have the full canon. We have the very word of God. Luke's gospel that we're reading this morning is, is Luke going to the eyewitnesses and recording everything that the eyewitnesses said. I mean, think about this. Simeon was a man that never read about the compassion of Jesus toward the sick, towards the sinners, towards the outcast, towards the lowly, towards those that society would say are, are no good. Jesus was compassion toward them, and Simeon never saw that. He never read about that. He never heard the wonderful teachings of Jesus. He never heard things like, today you'll be with me in paradise. Simeon never heard that. He never heard things like, it is finished. You see, Simeon never held a New Testament in his hands. And he never read that Christ would conquer the grave and sin and death and be resurrected. He didn't know that. You know, we have more than Simeon. And yet somehow we long for him less. And how's that even possible? I don't know, but sadly it's true. But I want you to know today that Jesus is the hope of the world. Jesus is the way of salvation. So let me ask you a question. I ask this question all the time. It's Christmas. I'm going to ask it again. But to you, who's Jesus? To you personally, who is Jesus Christ? Then there's lots of answers to that question. People will say, well, he was just a wandering holy man. He was a Palestinian Jewish cynic. He was the Jewish Talmud. That's a set of Jewish commentaries says that Jesus was a magician that sought to lead Israel astray. Some will say he's a self-proclaimed prophet. Some say that he died in delusionment. Some say he was just a moral reformer, a political savior, a social revolutionary, a legend Some say he's just a fabrication of the early church. Or is he exactly who he says he was? That he is God come in the flesh. You know, today we live in a pluralistic culture. And yet Christianity is exclusive. The truth is all all religions are exclusive. The pluralist doesn't want to admit to that. But it's true. All religions exclude what the, the claims they make. But it all boils down to this. Are the claims that are made by that religion, are they true or not? Because Christianity is true. And if Christianity is true, that means all other religions are wrong. But our culture that we live in is a pluralistic culture. And the religious pluralist says, well, all religion is equally true. The pluralist will say all religion roughly says the same thing. The pluralist will say that... All religion is, is only superficially different, but at its core, it's, it's essentially the same. That's not true. All religion is only superficially the same. At its core, it is wrong and different. A, a religious pluralist would say, imagine there's a mountain, and there's gods at the top of the mountain, and all the different religions are, are, are different paths up the same mountain to the final destination with God. The problem with that is I'm not trying to get up a mountain I'm trying to get to God. And there's only one way to God. That is through Jesus. 
The night before Jesus was arrested and and tortured and crucified, he had a final meal with his closest friends, the disciples, and he dropped this bombshell on them on the exclusivity of the gospel. In John 14, 6, it says, And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. With that one statement, Jesus did away with what the pluralists teach, that there's many ways to God. Jesus said, no, there's only one way to God, and that is through him. Now, the truth is, that is exclusive and inclusive at the same time, because that excludes all other faiths, but at the same time, it says, all are welcome. And Jesus goes on to say, I go to prepare a place for you. So does that mean that heaven's not ready yet? You know what Jesus is saying here? He's saying what's not prepared will be prepared specifically for you. One thing that tells me that for a believer, when a believer dies, a believer doesn't have to die in fear. Because for a believer dying, it's like going home to the father's house. That's what dying is like for a believer. It's like going home to be with dad. And Jesus said all of this, all of he said, said, the, the cross was just hours away and he knows the horrors that's going to come in. He knows the horrors of the, of the scourging. He knows the horrors of the nails that would be driven into his hands and to his feet. And he says, I go to prepare a place for you. That Jesus is literally the way to heaven. Jesus is literally the only way to be right with God. Hear me now. If Jesus is right, he's the only way. If he's right, all other religious gurus, prophets, founders, they're all wrong. Listen to what Dr. Luke records for us that the apostles said just a little after Jesus resurrected went back into heaven. In Acts chapter 4 verse 12, the word of God says that there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given by among men by which we must be saved. Follow me on this. If Jesus is wrong, the apostles, the apostles were wrong. And then, then they went ahead and they staked their life on Jesus and his resurrection would have been a lie. If the apostles and if Jesus is wrong, then Jesus can't be a way. Why do I say Jesus can't be a way? Follow me. Because then Jesus would be a liar. He'd be a fraud. He'd be a lunatic. I mean, he, for, he claimed that he and he alone can forgive sins. That he and he alone can bring somebody to God. You see, Jesus is either the way Or he's no way. He can't be a way. The pluralist would say that Jesus is just one of many ways that you can be right with God. But Jesus said he is the way. If he's wrong, then he's a liar. But if he's right, then he's the only way to God. That Jesus is the only way to heaven. And if he's the only way to to heaven, then, then you have to give your life to him. You have to fall on your knees. You must submit to him. Give your life because he's the only. If he's truly God come in the flesh, then we lose control of our lives because he purchased our life with his own. You see, the real problem with the pluralist is the issue of authority. They want to dictate what is right and what is wrong. And they do this. They solve this issue by saying that all is right. But that is logically impossible Because truth is right and error is a lie. You can't be wrong and truth at the same time. 
Imagine if you would, I'm holding a vial, a bottle, a canister, and I sincerely believe with every fiber of my being that the liquid contained in that container, container is very cool, clear, clean drinking water. And I believe that with all my heart. But upon drinking it, I discover it's poison. I will be sincerely dead. Regardless of how sincere my belief was, right? I want you to know that Simeon was right. That Jesus was prepared and sent by the Father. A light for the revelation to the Gentiles. The glory of the very nation of Israel. Because God saves both Jew and Gentile. And Jesus came to save everybody. Somebody from every nation and tribe and language and tongue. I mean, picture what it's going to look like in heaven. There's going to be this sea of people. This is going to be the most multi-ethnic worship service in the history of time. And that's what it's going to look like. Here's the point of application. You can't be neutral on Jesus. You can't say, I'll take him or I'll leave him. I'm kind of in the middle. That's not an option. Simeon speaks directly to me, to, to Mary. He says to her, look in verse 34. He says, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel. You see, Jesus came to bring, bring peace and conflict. He came to bring peace and a sword. Picture this. You know, weeks before, Mary's having a conversation with his, her cousin Elizabeth. And it's all amazing. It's all, it's, everything's going to be wonderful. And, and nothing bad is at least in her mind. And then she speaks to Simeon. And she's like, what, a sword? Conflict? This is the very first time this idea is even presented to Mary. And she had to center her mind on till. Like, what are you talking about? Listen how Jesus says it later in the gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 12, verse 51, Jesus says, Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, two against three. They'll be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. You see, Jesus is the very center of controversy. He always has been. And the truth is, he will be until he comes back. And when it comes to Jesus, there's always been conflict. There's always been division. And Jesus is the point of unity who love him. But he's also the point of disunity for those who hate him. I want you to know the gospel, it divides Don't be surprised if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and those who are closest to you who don't know Jesus, they're actually against you. Why do some people hate you? Because you love Jesus. That's it. And Jesus is offensive to everybody who doesn't love him. And I say that because the message of the gospel is terribly offensive. The gospel is offensive because the gospel says you're wrong. Not only does the gospel say you're wrong, but you're so terribly wrong. There's nothing you can do about it. And not only is there nothing you can do about it, you're drastically, tragically stuck with no hope in them of yourself. And the fact that you're tragically stuck and so wrong, there's nothing you can do about it, that offends. Because most people think, well, I'm a pretty good person. And if I'm going to get to God, it's because I'm a good person. My goodness helps me get to, to God And the gospel says, no. Read in Luke chapter 14, verse 25 and 26. It says, now the great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and he said to them, 
If anyone comes after, to, comes to me and does not hate his own father and his mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You know, side note here, people have accused me of saying some pretty harsh things. I've never said anything as harsh as that. I mean, that, that's, that's wild there. Out for a little stroll in the countryside and turn around and say, hey, hate your father and mother. That's a tough saying. But what Jesus, Jesus actually using a language of hyperbole, it's a language of exaggeration to get his point across. He's not really saying, hate your father, hate your mother. What he's saying is, choose me over your father. Choose me over your mother, over your own children, over your friends. What Jesus is saying, he says, I have to come first before everyone and everything. That's what he's saying. And Simeon says about Jesus, he's appointed for the fall and the rise of many. Jesus is the great divider. Why? Why does Jesus polarize people? Again, because you can't be neutral on Jesus. That's why. You're either for him or you're against him. You're either going to fall or you're going to rise. And it all comes down to Jesus. What do you say about Jesus? I mean, think about it. Jesus made some bold claims. I would argue the most bold claims ever in the history spoken in the world. He said that he and he alone has the power to forgive sins. He claimed that he and he alone can grant eternal life. He said that he is going to judge all of mankind. He claimed to be, always be with the disciples to the end of the age. He assumed the right to accept worship. He claimed to be perfectly sinless, and he claimed to be God in human flesh. And he claimed to be the only way to God. In Jesus' life and his bold claims, it demands a response. Either he is God come in flesh... Or he's a delusional quack. Hate him or love him. But you cannot shrug your, shrug your shoulders and say, well, he's kind of a nice guy. That's not an option. So again, I ask that question. Who is Jesus? To you, who is Jesus? Is he just a nice guy that comes into your life to bring you goodies? Or is he your Savior and Lord? Today is Christmas. Today is the day that we celebrate the birth of the God-man who came. So I'm asking, do you know Jesus? And how you respond to that question is going to determine your fate forever, for all eternity. Because Jesus is appointed for the fall and the rise of many. As a follower of Jesus Christ, death becomes our friend. Because if you're a believer, that death, it shouldn't be scary. It only ushers you into the very presence of God. And Jesus' life and death and resurrection was appointed for you to beat death and for you to rise to your new life and for, for, for God to give you this new perfect body that's going to last for all eternity, that's going to be with you forever. But if you're not a believer, then Jesus is appointed for your fall. And if you die without Christ today, you'll be forever separated from the presence of God. And you will fall at the feet of Jesus and out of your mouth will come that he is Lord. But that moment is going to be too late. Today is the day of salvation. I can't think of a better day of giving your life to Jesus than on Christmas morning. The Bible says that all who call on the name of the Lord, they will be saved. If you've never cried out to God... Do it today. Say, Jesus, 
I am a sinner. And I am separated from you because of my sin. But you love me and you came and you died for what I have done. I give you my life. Save me of my sins. And I say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.